Rachel's been back there working on it, so I know it's okay. Is it working out?
You might door. need those today. She walked in the door and I said, I told Andrew, I said, you better bring some blankets if I can't get the heat going. Well, the heat is going, but, you know, if it were on this side. 
It's Ida. You're going to sing loud? We are. We're going to sing loud. There's, well, like I said, there are there are a lot of people watching today. The clouds are watching. The Armstrongs are watching. So. There you go.
auditorium's a bit tipped this morning. A little heavy on one side. Let's look at our announcements. The Welliver family, you all know the Welliver family from Swartz Creek? Father diagnosed with terminal cancer. Keep them in your prayers. Sky Ferguson, I don't know if any of you know or remember Pastor Reed. Where, where is his church? New York? New York. New York. Rochester. Rochester, New York. His wife has been diagnosed with COVID-19. It's everywhere. Jenny Ziegler, a uh, bit of an encouraging uh, note from her this week. I don't know if any of you got it on Facebook. She seems to be doing better, and she was out uh, for a walk. Uh, if any of you know her, she loves the winter, and uh, she was out for a walk this past week. So that's good news, but a long ways uh, to go yet. See those under the doctor's under doctor's care, and of course our country finances, of course, uh, running a slight deficit for the year. If you look into our church praying, of course, uh, you see um, Claire May's death notice there. Continue to pray for the family. I'm, I, I understand Mercy had a seizure this morning, so again. Always keep her in your prayers. Many, many with health issues and suffering, so be faithful in your prayers. Uh, I think I announced it last week, but the new Acts and Facts and Days of Praise are here, so make use of those. Uh, anything I've forgotten this morning or missed? Okay. Our scripture for meditation, then, comes from Isaiah, the ninth chapter. Read verses 1 through 7. 1072 in the Pew Bible.
let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Our God and our Father, we ask that you would meet with us today. Uh, as we've noted already this morning, we've got many ill, uh, many suffering, many in sorrow. Uh, we pray for all of those concerns, pray for mercy this morning. We ask that you would uh, comfort the family uh, of Claire May in this difficult time uh, that uh, there's no uh, traditional uh, closure allowed. Thank you for uh, what was allowed. Uh, we ask that, uh, again, that you would be with those. And again, thank you for uh, Claire May and her life, an example to us um, of a servant. We think now as uh, we prepare uh, for the word that you would uh, open our hearts through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He is our teacher. We, we thank you for our pastor who has studied this past week uh, that uh, he might bring us uh, a message that you'd have us to hear and that we wouldn't be hearers only but doers of the word and make application uh, of that. So thank you for that. I pray that uh, you would accept our praise and worship. Uh, and that we would uh, turn our hearts towards Christ as we uh, begin uh, our worship service. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Trinity hymnal this morning and turn to number 204, 204 in the red. favorite hymn this morning, Christmas, Christmassy-ish hymn. I saw Elizabeth's hand. Was that really a hand, Elizabeth? No? All right. Naomi. <laughs> no one up here? 
right. Naomi? It is a Christmas hymn. <laughs> Do you know what number it is, honey? Yet it is in there. It's 213. 213. <laughs> <laughs> Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. It's 1497 in the Pew Bible. Let's stand as we read together. Matthew 2, 1-12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Ask that the Lord would bless his word. Take your red hymnal one more time, the red trinity, and turn to number 226, 226 in the red.
sensor did. Yeah. There we go. Whoa. That's a close It's one. way down. Whoa. Is that too high? That's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Our scripture text this morning is Matthew chapter 2. In our last study, we looked at the very troubling engagement experienced by Joseph and Mary. What troubled Joseph most was the fact that Mary was obviously pregnant before they were married, so he thought her to have been unfaithful to him. Mary chose to say nothing of what she knew and instead trusted the Lord to intervene directly on her behalf. I mean, think about this. Her her explanation was so fantastical that Joseph would not have believed it, though he loved Mary very deeply. He planned to divorce her privately to avoid any public scandal and disgrace. And it was then that the Lord appeared to him in a dream and revealed, as he had done with Mary months before, that Mary's child was conceived of the Holy Spirit. She was still a virgin. She had not been unfaithful to Joseph. In Bible times, God used dreams and visions to disclose his will to his people. And then they would write down what God told them in the dreams. That's how we got our Bible. All of it. The prophets heard from God, dreams, visions, so on, wrote it down for us to have for years and years to come generations to come well upon awakening joseph quickly complied with the angel's command he took mary home to be his wife and he refused intimate relations with her until after the birth of jesus lest people conclude that he was jesus biological father i think that was a smart move on his part people being what they are, they make their own conclusions, and often they conclude wrong. We drew out a number of lessons on the text. God's word records the truth, even if the truth lends itself to misunderstanding and distortion. Spin is our modern word for it. Don't put that in the book. They'll spin that the wrong way. God trusts the work of the Spirit. Secondly, don't be quick to make judgment calls based on your observations. You would be wrong, wrong, wrong when you saw Mary if you thought she was been, had been unfaithful. Number three, sometimes people cannot learn from your explanations. God will have to intervene as the case was with Joseph. The ultimate teacher is the Holy Spirit. And finally, we learn that Mary's child is aptly named Jesus. The word Jesus is the Greek word for Savior. That's what it means, Savior. Because, the scripture says, he will save his people from their sins. How does he do that? He opens their spiritually blind eyes to grant insight and 
repentance. Well, today's study brings before us the tense account of the Magi and the murderer. So as we come to God's word, let's ask for his enablement. Thank you, Lord, for preserving the scriptures for us. We have our own personal copy. That was not always the case. It was in days past the fact that people would have to assemble in the square of the town or in a building and describe who had the copy of the scriptures, probably the only one copy available for that town, would stand and read the scriptures, and people had to learn from the reading of the scriptures. But here we are. We have our own copy of the scriptures, each of us, a Bible. It's been recorded. What a great day to be living, to have this for us, to take home with us, to get up with in the morning, to go to bed at night, to check on through the day, to learn of the will of God. We thank you for it. Now at this Christmas time of the year, we think of the birth of Christ and his ministry. So we pray that you will help us today as we look at the Magi and the Murderer. In Christ's name, amen. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem in search of the newborn Jewish king. Do not think magicians when you hear the word magi. It's the Greek word magos. It means a scientist, an astronomer of Persian descent, sometimes because of a tie-in to the occult, viewed as sorcerers, interpreters of dreams, priests of an oriental religion, and so on. We have such a person in Acts chapter 8 whose name was Simon. The scripture says, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. Acts 8, verse 9. Magos, his name, hence Simon the Great. Magos is the word great. People's analysis was to whom they all gave heed, From the least to the greatest, saying, This is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Acts 8, verse 10, verse 11. You know, sometimes it's a thin line between true science and the mystical. Sometimes. And between true religion and the occult. This is what was occurring with Simon Magnus in Acts 8. He used supernatural powers, demonic powers, to wow the public with his sorcery. And the people concluded that he was the great power of God. Of course, they couldn't explain what he was able to do. And this showed a lack of discernment on their part, that's that's for sure. Not all things supernatural are of God. Did you know that? They're not. Satan is a supernatural being, that is, he's not a human being. And Paul tells us that the day is coming when Satan's false Christ is coming, which will appear, writes Paul, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan 
displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Oh, you mean there's counterfeits out there? Yeah, there are. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. Verse 9, excuse me. Unfortunately, the miracle seekers of our day proved no wiser than the public of Simon's day, who thought of him exhibiting the great power of God. Well, he wasn't exhibiting the power of God at all. We do associate miraculous power to Christ Jesus, the Lord. That's true. But we should also heed Jesus' own warnings about the end times, the times in which we live. What does he say? For false Christs and false prophets will appear, and they will perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that's possible. Matthew 24, verse 24. So, if the only thing you recognize about God is the supernatural, then you are susceptible to the satanic world of the supernatural, and Satan is the great imitator, he is the great counterfeiter of the genuine Christ. Okay, but what about these magi in our text? Were they scientists or were they sorcerers? Were they men who chartered their lives superstitiously by the movement of the constellations and stars? That would be astrology, not astronomy. Or were they men who studied the stars from a scientific interest? Well, clearly they were men of science. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, for one thing, they asked for the one who has been born king of the Jews, and they reference, verse 2, his star. His star as the reason they have sought him out. Now that tells us, unlike astrology, which groups masses of people under the signs of the zodiac, these magi confess to seeing one star of unique formation and brilliance, verse 7, tells us that this star was not part of any constellation because Herod wanted to know the exact time the star had appeared to these magi. So it's a new star, right? It's not, that's not something they've seen in the constellation of the heavens many, many times. What hasn't been visible before? It's a unique star. It is a star not part of the sky that formed the stellar library of their studies. What is more, this star moved from point A to point B, and it became their compass to lead them to the very place where Jesus was housed, verse 9. Stars don't do that. No, normal stars don't do that. Their quest was explained in their own words. They say, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So this tells us that these astronomers identified this newly seen star 
with the creative power of God. They call it his star. Not simply the choosing of any star among the billions that are already created and then putting your name on it. No, they didn't do that. But a star of his own creation. A star that moves like a plane through the sky. Probably more like a helicopter. A star that starts and stops and moves again. A star that can stand still and hover indefinitely on one place. They see divinity attached to this star, and their plan is to worship him, verse 2, whose star has been their roadmap for many a long and arduous trip. You'd be convinced too. The first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, states of God. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the night, or govern the day, excuse me, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, verse 16. David, King David, certainly no slouch when it came to intellect, said, when I consider your heavens, He's talking to God in a prayer. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? What are the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 8, verse 3, verse 4. He's saying, of course, that man is comparatively insignificant compared to the vast heavens that God has created and filled them with the stars. Again, we read in Psalm 147, he determined the number of the stars. He calls them each by name. Great is our Lord, mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5. There's billions of stars, and yet God calls them each by name. Mind-boggling. Unfortunately, those who deny creation and turn away from the Creator, among other things, violate the very warning that Moses issued to Israel, which was this. Moses said to his people, When you look up to the sky and you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them... And worshiping things, the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. Or for the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they did worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, who is Lord over all and forever to be praised. Amen. Romans 1, 25. Now, this may be the world of mankind in general, but I can categorically state it is not the magi of our text. No, these students of science have come to worship him who is born king of the Jews because his star has indicated his unique divinity as creator and king. 
They knew the stars and said, whoa, whoa, there's a new star up here. And they linked it up with the idea of the coming Messiah. Herod and all Jerusalem were disturbed by the Magi's inquiry. I mean, ask yourself this question. What could possibly be so disturbing about the Magi's inquiry? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? What's disturbing about that? Well, it's an unsettling claim for Herod to hear that someone has been born king of the Jews. Uh, really? <laughs> Herod could say, but I'm king of the Jews by Caesar of Rome's own appointment, which is true. Herod saw the baby Jesus as a potential rival and a usurper of his throne. And Herod was not one, he was not one to take such news lying down. He'd already proved himself to be a ruthless and cunning murderer. Herod was the son of Antipater, an Edomite. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. He was a practicing Jew, but of Arab descent. He became friends of Mark Antony of Julius Caesar's reputation, who conferred Roman citizenship upon him. He ruled for 33 years with blood dripping from his family history of cruelty and brutality. 35 B.C., Aristobulus, the 16-year-old high priest, was murdered by Herod's servants. Herod feared that the good-looking young man would win the affection of Antony in Egypt and that Antony might support him as king of Judea instead of Herod as king of Judea. So Herod took Aristobulus down to Jericho to Alexandria's palace for a nighttime swim. Oh boy. And hidden in the darkness, Herod's servants dunked the young man underwater till he drowned. This guy's bloody. 35 B.C., Joseph, Herod's uncle, was executed for sharing family secrets with Miriam, Herod's wife. 29 B.C., Miriam, Herod's wife, and Alexandra, Herod's mother-in-law, were executed in a fake assassination plot schemed up by Herod's sister, Salome, in the mock trial that followed. Herod acted as prosecutor and as judge. And Miriam, <laughs> she had no way out. She was convicted. She was sentenced to death along with her mother, Alexandra. He doesn't mind killing people that are in his way or that he thinks are somehow are going to be in his way. 28 B.C., one year later, Costabar, Herod's brother-in-law, was executed. Herod's sister Salome won a divorce from her husband Costabar, but the law didn't allow for such divorce. Fortunately for Salome and unfortunately for Costabar, she framed her husband and told Herod that 
Costabar was planning a coup against him. Oh, boy. Several men, including Costabar, the king's own brother-in-law, were rounded up and executed. See what's going on? He's a bloody man. He doesn't. You, you get in Herod's way and you get to die. That's, that's basically it. 7 B.C., Herod's son, Alexander, and Aristobulus were executed. His own sons. These two boys were the sons of Queen Miriam, whom Herod had already killed. Even though Herod intended to leave them his kingdom, they disdained him greatly. So vicious Salome struck back. That's his sister. This time concocting rumors that the boys and turning Herod's heart against his own sons, he blamed the boys for attempted coup. The the king took the two intelligent and handsome sons to the city of Sebast, where he had married their mother, and he had them strangled to death. This guy's a real peach, right? Herod then chose another son, Antipater, to become his heir. Three years later, 4 B.C., Antipater was executed. This son was born to Herod by Doris, a woman without nobility, but Herod chose Antipater as heir after killing his stepbrothers. Antipater grew weary of waiting for the throne, and when Doris was implicated in a plot against the king, Antipater was thrown in prison where he sat for several years. One day, towards the end of Herod's life, the prisoner prematurely thought the king had died, and he ordered the guard to release him so he could ascend to the throne, while instead the guard went to check, and upon finding the king still alive, he was ordered to go and kill the presumptuous prince, which he did. Excerpts on the life and times of Herod the Great. The Herod the Great, well, what he was great about him is that he killed off all, any contemporaries, any that he thought was going to try to st- steal his throne. The older Herod became, the more paranoid he became. He was suspicious of everyone. So, the Magi arrived towards the end of Herod's life, and the news which they considered they considered to be very joyous, Herod considered to be ruinous. As to why all Jerusalem would be troubled by the news of the Magi, we can say it this way, that when Herod was upset, all the kingdom was upset because he was a tyrant. Oh, yeah. The people loved Herod for his vast building projects. He built aqueducts to bring water into Jerusalem, gardens, bathhouses, libraries, the magnificent temple called Herod's Temple for worship. But none of these things pacified their hearts knowing that Herod was like a tinderbox which could explode in a fury without notice. You don't want to get on the king's wrong side you're going to end up being executed. 
Think about this. If a man would murder his own wife and his own sons, wherein did the people's safety lie? It was tenuous. Herod inquired of the theologians, asking them where the Christ child was to be born, verse 4. And without a moment's hesitation, they answered, well, in Bethlehem and Judea. So they knew the scriptures. And then they quoted from the prophet, Micah 5, verse 2. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Micah, uh, Matthew 2, verse 6. So with that information in hand, Herod secretly called the Magi, saying, Go, make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report back to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Matthew 2, verse 7 and 8. So off the Magi went, led to the very house, the house, not a stable. The, he's a child now. Jesus is not a little baby anymore. He's a toddler. Verse 11. They followed this uh, star that has become their compass for their entire journey. And there they found in the child's house, in the, in the house, the toddler Jesus along with his mother Mary. No reference to Joseph. So, most theologians think that sometime in the interim, as the child was growing up and became a toddler, somewhere in all of that, Joseph might have died. Because from this point on, we don't hear anything of him. As they bowed in worship towards him, they presented the boy king with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, verse 11, their royal gifts for a royal king. Their charge from King Herod was to return to him and report the location where Jesus was found. But, verse 12 indicates, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Matthew 2, verse 12. It's one thing to listen to an evil king that's up to no good. Another thing to listen to the word of God, the will of God. These magi were foreigners to Palestine. I mean, think about it. They may not have known Herod's reputation. Had they returned to Jerusalem, they would have been unwittingly compliant in Herod's slaughter of the boy infants of Bethlehem, which we have recorded in Scripture. Thousands of babies died because when the magi didn't return, you know what happened. Why, those lousy magi, they didn't report back to me. I'll show them. And he sent his troops, his soldiers into Bethlehem, and they slaughtered all children, two years old and younger, according to the age they had, had understood by the seeing of the star. Now what do we learn from the men of science and this murderous king? that they encountered. Well, number one, we should learn that true science, that is unbiased investigation and analysis, has no conflict with the Bible. True science. Sometimes you will hear people talk about 
scientific truth versus biblical truth. In actuality, truth is singular, not plural. This has been a great game changer in our day with the promotion of individual truth. I mean, you hear people will talk about my truth and your truth. It's silly. They believe truth is flexible. That it is only to be found in the eye of the beholder, like beauty. Truth is subjective, they think, not objective. It's relative, not absolute. It's not the same for all time, for all ages. Wrong, wrong, wrong. There's a misunderstanding that change means that truth changes too. When in actuality, if something is true, it's true for all times. Now, if it does change, it means that our understanding has been flawed. And we need to learn more, discover more. But new discoveries do not mean an evolution of truth, but rather an increase of knowledge about truth. Oh, we didn't know that, but we learned a little more, so now we know. Well, did truth change? No. Your understanding changed. Let me give you as an example. It was once believed that the earth, the earth, was the center of our solar system. Ptolemy, the ancient Greek philosopher, popularized this theory, although it was believed by Aristotle and Plato before him. Flaws in the observations gave rise to the Copernium, the heliocentric theory, that the sun, not the earth, was the center of our universe. Nevertheless, Ptolemy's earth-centered theory was workable. Did you know that? The astronomical predictions of Ptolemy's geocentric model were used to prepare astrological and astronomical charts for over, get it now, 1,500 years. That's a long time to be studying the stars based on a wrong theory. The geocentric model held sway into the early modern age. But from the late 16th century onward, it was gradually superseded by the heliocentric model of Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler. While Galileo did not invent the telescope, he certainly perfected it. He perfected it with stronger and more accurate lenses, which enabled astronomers to search and chart the heavens. Say, so, well, what's your point? My point is this. Did truth change from the earth-centered theory of our universe to the sun-centered theory? No. The sun was and is the center of our system, and it has been that which since the dawn of creation. What changed was man's understanding of our solar system. The result, a new theory proposed to align with the new understanding. 
and facts came to the fore through better designed instruments and telescopes for viewing and measuring. Now as to our text, in which the Magi credit a special star which led them to Jerusalem, which they identify as his star, verse 1, the star, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, still being very specific, we know that even in our time, new stars are being formed daily. MIT scientists believe this is the result of volatile gases forming in clouds, pulled into a tight bundle to a central location of gravity, heat, and explosion forming new stars. That's the way they describe it. The fact that atmospheric gases coalesce, heat up, explode, does not alter the creative power of God who made the gases. The Bible gives the results. Not the mechanics of how it got there. Isaiah put it this way. Speaking of God. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. And he spreads them out like a tent to live in. Isaiah 40 verse 22. Did you catch that? Isaiah writing 700 years before the New Testament wrote that God sits in the circle of the earth. Oh, you mean the earth was always round? It, it wasn't square as the ancients believed that you could sail out onto the edge of the earth and drop over the edge? The answer was in the book all along. People just didn't uh, comprehend it. The stars, like all creation, lead to Christ in true worship. Mankind does not profit from creation unless and until it leads them to acknowledge and worship the Creator, who is God in the flesh. We have missed the boat if we switch our faith or our allegiance our worship to creation away from the creator. Moses thus warned Israel. Here's what he said. When you look up to the sky, said Moses, and you see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has a portion to all the nations under heaven. Deut Deuteronomy 4.19. You see, the, the danger is always there. People stop it. They look at the creation and they worship the things rather than the creator who made those things. So this is precisely the apostasy that the world has done. Paul tells us how this happened. He says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, here it is, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, has been clearly seen. How? Being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of, get it now, the immortal God. They exchanged Him for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, idols. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is ever to be praised. Amen. Romans 1 verse 18 and following. That's our world today. All of the pagan countries, they're worshipping the things that the Creator made, not the Creator. Say, well, they don't know about the Creator. Well, that's what missionary work is all about. That's why we send missionaries, to tell them about the Creator. They don't have a Bible. We take Bibles with us on the mission field. We translate into their own languages so that they can read it for themselves, not just take our word for it. Well, who's this Creator? Paul testifies of Christ Jesus. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. The Magi acknowledge this in their search. The king they sought was none other than God, worthy of their worship. That's why they came. Which brings me to my final point. Men can know the scripture, chapter and verse. They can know that and still miss the Savior. Sadly. You see, knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. Theology, like any of the other disciplines of study, can be pursued and even mastered by people whom we might designate as scholars in their field of expertise. There are colleges full of theologians teaching theological students that don't know the God of the theology. Herod did not hesitate, verse 4, to call together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, whom he knew would have the answer to the question, where is Christ, where is the Messiah to be born? Without hesitation, without even skipping a beat, they referred to their theological library. They answered Herod immediately, oh, in Bethlehem of Judea. That's where he's to be born. See, they knew that. How did they know that? Well, these were the men who made it their life's work to study Jewish law and history and the Old Testament scriptures. So they knew. Yet, it is the same group of men who in later life orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus as one who had blasphemed God 
by claiming God as his father. I mean, if they were sincere students of God's word, seeking to discover and worship the Messiah, why did they not do a little research, just a little research, based upon their own knowledge? What, what knowledge? Well, they knew that Bethlehem town was prophesied to be the birth site of the promised Messiah, that they knew, that they believed, they had it in their own scriptures. So even a cursory investigation would have revealed that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact Jesus born in Bethlehem, who moved to Nazareth, verse 23. Just a little investigation they would have discovered. Oh, he's not a native-born Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, exactly the town where God said he would send his son. Do you know, any first-year Bible school student could have discovered this had they a mind to. Yet these are the big scholars here, the theologians of the day. Beware of Bible study, brethren, that fills your head with facts about God, but does little or nothing to warm your heart and strengthen your faith in God. Jesus put it this way. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So they they gave Jesus lip service. They knew the right things to say. They knew when to say those things in the presence of others. He says, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God. I'm still reading scripture. And you're holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way, this is Jesus still speaking, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Oh, really? We'd rather have our own theological conclusions, and we don't want Jesus upsetting the boat. So he said to them, thus, because you do that, thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Mark 7, verse 6 and following. They're they're their own worst enemies. They're going to stick with their traditions rather than what God has said in his word. This is what we believe. We're going to stick with this. So, yeah, but what, the, what about the Bible? The Bible says, well, we don't care. This is our tradition. We've always believed this. We've always taught this. We're going to continue to believe this. We're going to continue to teach these things. Brethren, the Bible was not given to you and me so we could argue theology. It was given so that we could come to know and love and serve and obey 
the God of those studies. Theology without submission to the God of which it speaks is just rules taught by men. That's all it is. It would have been a lot more meaningful and profitable to these religious officials whom whom Herod summoned for information about the Messiah had they said to the Magi, well, let's see. The Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, and and, and if you have no objection, we want to go along with you. Whoa. Paul put it this way, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, idols. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those Weak and miserable principles. Do you wish to be enslaved by those things all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. All the accoutrements of formalized worship, you see. With man-made theology that emphasizes man's worth and man's work and denies the grace of Christ. And Paul said, I fear for you that somehow I've Wasted my efforts on you. Galatians 4, verse 8 and following. (coughs) Brethren, people can appear very sincere as worshipers of God who are murderers at heart. When Herod commissioned the Magi with this task, go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, Report to me so that I, too, may go and worship him. Yeah, verse 8. Herod came across, I mean, so sincere, so believable that the Magi had to be warned in a dream by God not to go back to Herod. Don't you do that. So, they returned home by an alternate route that circumlocuted Jerusalem, got them away from Herod. So the question comes, how can we tell who's real and who's a fake? Jesus gave this litmus test. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus... By their fruit, you will recognize them. Matthew 7, verse 16, following. Don't believe everything just because it's being said. Judge by the fruit, the life. The the message must agree with the life. Jesus also made the connection between lies and murder when he described Satan. Here's what he said about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning 
not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. John 8, verse 44. John warns, dear friends, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. The reason being, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Tell us, please. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that spirit is from God. But, here's the, here's the downer. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of Antichrist which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. 1 John 4, the first three verses. You, your friends, your relatives, your business associates, sadly, maybe even one among a fellow church member. Hypocrisy is not always easy to spot. Be realistic about your own heart before God. Remove the plank beclouding your own vision so that you do not treat people with false assurance. Oh yeah, he's a brother. She's a sister in Christ. Really? Do you know that? What's your evidence? Remove the plank beholding your own vision too so that you don't treat yourself as being one of Christ's disciples when you're not the question is not how much they know about God that's not it but whether God knows them person known by God will produce righteous and godly fruit that's why Jesus said well yeah and that by their fruit you will know whose child they are (laughs) Are they God's children or are they Satan's children? Dig a little deeper than the words. Well, I love God. Well, I know God. Anybody can say that. How are they living? Are they living for the Lord? Are they obedient to his word as the spirit enables them to be? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. It's truth. And it bites us at times because it convicts us of false assumptions. Maybe we're thinking we're okay spiritually. We go to church, we pray, we read our Bibles. But if there's no living out the principles, are we really God's children or are we Satan's? Yeah, that's true. By the by, our fruit, you are declaring us to be known. Well, is our fruit truly godly, or are we hypocrites? Are we not living what we profess? Now, not perfectly. Nobody can do it perfectly, but by and large, our lives. Once we claim to be a Christian, our lives should reflect a love for God, a love for his word, a love for the scriptures, 
I love for the preaching. I love for being in the fellowship with God's saints. In other words, our life changes. Our friends change. Our places of amusement change. Our associations change. Our work ethic changes. Things change from the inside out and everything changes. Because, Lord, you're going to make us holy. Without holiness, the scripture says, we will not see the Lord. Please help us to see that. And more than seeing it, change us. Make us your children in heart and soul and spirit. Not just in lip service. For the glory of Jesus, we ask these things. And for our good, we ask these things. Amen. Closing hymn is in the Trinity, 199. 199 in the red hymnal. stand together as we sing. One nine nine in the red.
so many of our fellow citizens in America and around the world. Uh, Christmas is not about Christ being born. It's about a fat man with a round belly and a corncob pipe and little elves with peaked noses and pointed ears. It's about reindeer that can't fly, but they're flying. It's about all that the world of Satan does to distort and twist the salvation story of God's redemption through Christ. Christmas is about God coming to earth to save humanity in the person of his son. And if you don't have that, you just miss it. And there are many people, the bulk of people, miss it. Let's not miss it. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. This is where we can go and find the real Christmas story. Not some fictitious invention of men. But you sending your son. Shepherds coming and actually qualifying it, seeing it. The oriental kings that came and brought their gifts so they could worship the new king, the king of kings and lord of lords. We're all going to meet you someday. We need to be ready to meet you. And that can happen if we trust you by faith. If we look to you to be the one who paid the debt of our sin, that's what the cross is all about. People all get wrapped up, Lord, in the baby in the manger. But that baby grew up, and about age 33, they took him and nailed him to a cross for nothing that he had ever done. But it was essential that he die for the sins of his people, and that is who we are if we trust him. Please help us to see the spiritual significance of the of the season and the work of Christ that he's come to do. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.